So transitions in life happen. We, we all go through stages, and, and that became uh, something that happened to me recently that identified I, I've maybe transitioned. The other day, I was playing basketball, and um, I hear people talking on the sideline, and they're talking, and I hate even using this terminology, but I'm going to use it so you know. They're, they're, they're saying something about the, the OG over there, and I'm like, who's the OG they're referring to? And... Um, in my mind, I was thinking the OG referenced old guy. Apparently, I've been corrected culturally to that's original gangster. Gangsta, if I'm going to be correct. Either way, it means you're the older gentleman on the, out in the, in the court. And they're referring to someone, and I start looking around. And I'm like, well, who are they talking about, right? <laughs> it's, surely it's not me. Because uh, I'm like, and the other guys I'm playing with, I'm like, well, no one's that old that's out here. And then so they, we start the game, and, they, and one of the guys goes, I'll guard the OG. And I'm like, okay, now I'm going to know who they're referring to. He comes and guards me. <laughs> they were referring to me, and I was like, oh, no, man. That means I'm the guy they see as the oldest one on the court. And that was kind of like this sad transition. Like one day you're young and spry and feel like you can jump, and the next day you're the old guy that someone wants to pick up because they don't think you'll run that much. <laughs> Um, other times transitions happen very quickly. Like you're watching a movie and it's going along and the movie you thought you were watching all of a sudden changes and it's just completely different. And you're like, what am I watching? This is not what I signed up for. And it's just kind of like that. The transition happens. And that's kind of what we're going to see as we change from Daniel six to Daniel seven is this really quick transition. We go from like these great Bible narratives that are taught in Sunday school, um, to kind of this like apocalyptic psychedelic thriller that the end of Daniel 7 ends. You have crazy visions and dreams. It leaves the author in terror after he writes some of this. He's afraid of what he's seen himself. And so there's a lot of like transition that happens, but there's also a lot of mystery in this. Daniel himself said this in Daniel 7, 28. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. What he saw basically made him sick or become pale because of what he sees in his vision. Um, so later in Daniel 8, he'll say his, he was appalled by his visions and does not understand it. Um, he is confused. He doesn't know what all of this means. When we talk about end times, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. And so with any study concerning the end times or about end of days, um, they're just things we, we can't be certain about. There's a whole lot of people that are much, much smarter than I am that disagree on a lot of this. Um, and so I, I, I can't really take this strong stance to say, like, this is what's going to happen. So many people have been made to look foolish that have taken stances like that and said, I know who this person is, the Antichrist. I know when the end's going to happen. And what happens is they're made to look foolish when that doesn't come to fulfillment. Um, so in prepping for this, I did some reading. I watched a Bible teacher. She had six, six 30-minute sessions on this. And I was like, that's three hours on one chapter. So I'm not going to present three hours on one chapter. And again, if you want to hear me talk for three hours, you got issues. So we're not going to do that. We're going to try to boil this down and condense it. And generally, as we go throughout this series over the next few weeks, we're going to try to present what's considered maybe traditional mainline Christianity um, evangelical point of view, but you may take like a different point of view on some of this. And this is one of those areas we just don't take that firm of a stance on. So if you're like, I disagree with you and I don't think that's accurate, 
you know, no big deal. We could still get along and hang out. But four of us, before church, four of us were talking. And what we realized is between the four of us, we all four had different points of view on some of this stuff. So don't put me on your list. Like some of the old ladies in Texas would keep a like running list of things. I don't know how they ever squared that with scripture. Um, but I would, Christy could testify to this. Like she remembers like, they'd be like, that person's on my list. And I'd be like, what? How do you, like, you keep a list of who's done you wrong and, like, forever <laughs> retribution against them? So I don't know how these sweet old ladies kept these running lists, but they did. But don't put me on that list if you disagree with me, okay? We'll just all get along later. Um, so we're going to jump back into Daniel, the second half of it. And hopefully you remember some of the first half. Daniel was taken into Babylonian captivity as a teenager. Um, he rose to like a, a major power position under Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler, and he was promoted. He served for multiple rulers in his lifetime. And we left off in Daniel 6, where we have an elderly Daniel um, late in his life refusing to pray or refusing to stop praying and continuing to begin, uh, keep his faith walk up and praying to the Lord. And he finds himself in the lion's den. And so this takes place, um, seven takes place after that, but in a sense before that in the timeline. And we'll kind of adjust that as we go. So some of the things you're going to notice as we go through Daniel 7 in the second half of Daniel, you're going to see a lot of imagery used. We're going to have lots of imagery used that wasn't used as much in the first six chapters. Um, they're symbolic visions. We don't always have clear-cut answers for what they're symbolic visions about, what they're symbolizing. Um, they're confusing for us, and sometimes even more so, uh, they can be confusing for us than the people then because we're not living in the same context that they were in. Um, we do know that many of these images invoked fear in Daniel, um, and clearly these are things that were scary-looking to him when he talks about losing his color or being terrified, or appalled. So there are things he sees that bring about fear in his life. Um, so Daniel describes them the best he can. We'll articulate them and explain them the best we can. Uh, we notice a difference in the dreams from the first half of Daniel to the second half of Daniel. The dreams and visions we saw in the first half of Daniel uh, were by the rulers, and Daniel would interpret them. And they were generally given as they would advance the storyline, kind of the narrative of what's happening. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, Daniel interprets it. Belshazzar has a dream, Daniel interprets it. And this one, Daniel has the dreams and visions, and he can't even interpret his own. He needs an angel to do that. And so these are kind of these prophetic, uh, apocalyptic dreams, but he does not understand his own dreams. He needs an angel to interpret them. We're also going to find the use of apocalyptic writing in the second half of Daniel. And this is kind of writing that focuses on the end times. And so you kind of see this prophecy and apocalyptic writing. And so just to kind of understand a bit of the distinction, uh, they're both used to tell future events. Uh, one commentator, I said, they're, they're like cousins. They're closely related and yet different. Um, apocaly or prophetic writing, especially prophecies given directly to a spokesperson sometimes, would be like, go and warn these people. Go and proclaim this to them. Like we find that in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 2. God tells Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to me, go and proclaim to, the, uh, to Jerusalem. So sometimes there's prophets who are told, go and proclaim this message. They're given a direct message for a direct people group. Other times there's prophecy, which is messages about the future. And we find something, an example of that in Zechariah 9 where it's said um, basically that Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem mounted on a donkey. And then we find that fulfilled in the New Testament when he enters in. And so that's prophecy said, said this is going to happen. We find it fulfilled in Christ's triumphant entry. And now apocalyptic writing, though, is often more indirect. There's not necessarily this like clear, singular meaning that we can look and find it. It's also a lot more focused on the end times. Like God gives Daniel a dream and visions. 
not necessarily a direct message to communicate. Uh, he's, kind of, he's not told to share this direct warning with the people. In a sense, he writes it down like in a journal that we get a glimpse of into of these are the dreams and visions he had and this is what happened. And so a lot of these things, prophetic or apocalyptic, are both about future events with apocalyptic being more future event driven like end times. And so Daniel doesn't even understand all these things himself. And a lot of us, we don't understand much of it till after it's happened. Prophecy, most of the time, is not understood until after the fact. So we look at Zechariah 9, when they're talking about the Messiah coming on a donkey, that was fulfilled, and we understood that when Matthew, the end of Matthew happens and he enters. But before that, we didn't have a clear understanding of that necessarily. And so um, a lot of this, Daniel wrote... Um, while Babylon is still ruling, he does serve under, under rulers, but the majority of this, um, majority of his writings of Daniel are in Babylonian captivity, and then the, that transitions, and we're going to see that now. So the timeline of this, we said it didn't happen at the end of six. So Daniel six ends um, with a guy named uh, Darius, or Darius. I like Darius because I like Hootie and the Blowfish, and Darius Rutgers, their lead singer. So even if that's incorrect, I'm going to pronounce it Darius in, in a tribute to him. Um, so we find Darius is the ruler at the end of Daniel 6. He threw Daniel in the lion's den. But the starting of Daniel 7, he jumps back and goes back to when a guy named Belshazzar is ruling. We find Belshazzar in Daniel 5. Dan, Belshazzar was the guy who saw their handwriting on the wall that basically said, you've been weighed and found wanting and your days are numbered. And by the end of Daniel 5, Belshazzar's dead. So that's kind of the timeline for this is it's the beginning of that guy's rule. Belshazzar is ruling. Daniel has a vision. The general date that is accepted is 553, but I kind of like to round it. So we're going to say 550 in case we're off a little bit. We'll use the circa method. So around 550 BC, this is where we're going to find Daniel starting to have these visions. Belshazzar's ruling. It's the first year of his reign. And we're going to pick it up in Daniel 7 verse 2. And we're going to kind of look at Daniel's vision and what he had. So Daniel 7, verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, or the Mediterranean, most likely is what he's seen. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told to rise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Another translation there says great boast. I think that's going to help us understand that better. Instead of great things, great boast. And so like I said, this really takes a turn. Uh, Daniel starts having visions of four beasts coming up from the Mediterranean Sea. It's been stirred up by these four winds. Um, and this, uh, he's starting to see these things and it's going to terrify him. Um, and we find this comparison. If you look back in Daniel 2, if you remember our teaching there, there was a great statue, right? 
Does anyone remember that? Nebuchadnezzar's dream had a dream of four statues, and Daniel see these four beasts. So we're going to kind of correlate these two because they, they appear to correlate. Uh, both these books, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, were written in the same language. After Daniel 7, we see a, a language transition in the writing of Daniel. So it would appear there's a correlation between 2 and 7. And so uh, Daniel also, we're going to kind of reference the interpretation of the dream as we go forward. We'll find that in the second half of Daniel. So we'll look at or of Daniel 7. We'll look at some of those verses. I may not reference all of them, but later for your own understanding, it may help you if you read all of Daniel 7 and see the full angel's interpretation there. So Daniel 7, 15 and 17 said this, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there. This is after he saw uh, God and Jesus is what it appears. Um, and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of things. The four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And so it looks like the angel's interpretation of the dream correlates with Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream. The four beasts are equal to the four kings that we saw in Daniel 2. And so we don't have time, like I said, to look at all this, but we're going to kind of use that correlation and looking at what we've learned and look at what are these four beasts, what we think they may be. Again, if you have a different point of view, uh, fine. I, this is not something that I take a major stance on. It's what I want to say. I don't want to like get in an argument and lose someone in my life or from our church because you're like, well, I don't think that. That's cool. Let's go out and watch a game or something. <laughs> That's fine, okay? Um, so here's what we find. The four beasts, what it looks like. Uh, the first beast we see is a winged lion. Um, we see that as a winged lion was commonly represented um, in ancient and Babylonian art and architecture. A winged lion would represent Babylon and in particular the ruler of Babylon. So we saw the head of the statue in Daniel 2 being the head of gold representing Babylon. But that also appears to line up directly with Daniel 7 where we see a winged lion. And a winged lion, if you, you can even go look on Wikipedia and find this, a winged lion was common in Babylonian architecture, Okay. And so that appears to be representing the nation of Babylon. We also find some other things that kind of allude to this. We find that the winged lion had its wings plucked off, most likely humbled. Who else was humbled in Daniel 2 that was prophesied about? Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and brought down. In fact, he grazed in the field like a cow. And so we find that maybe the, the, the wings ripped off the lions, that humbled lion. Um, and then we find he was brought out of his mad state and he stood on two feet like a man, which was also just referenced. So it's, we, we think, again, I'm going to use the word think a lot today and not we know. Um, we think that that's uh, talking about Babylon and maybe in particular, specifically Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and then he was given his mind back and made to stand on his feet like a man. The second beast we saw was a bear. And this bear was raised on one side with three ribs in its mouth. Um, it was told to devour much flesh. In Daniel 2, we find that the, the second kingdom was represented by silver. It was the chest and arms. And in Daniel 7, we find it's a bear. It was told to devour much. So it's munching on the three ribs, kind of this insatiable desire to conquest and to devour and to conquer. The Medes and Persians are kind of who we speculate that was. And they were known for their great conquest and their ability to control and rule. Uh, the three ribs possibly represent the three great conquests they had of Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. And the bear, it stood on one side with one side a little higher than the other. Um, uh, people think that that is talking about how uh, one of the empires was stronger than the other. The Persians were stronger than the Medes. So one side is lifted up over the other. 
Then, then the next beast we see after this is the four-headed, four-winged leopard. So it's not a regular leopard. It's, it's a leopard with, with four heads, four wings, and it was told that it had great dominion. And correlating then, again, this with Daniel 2, we look at this and, and, and think that this was probably the Greeks. And under Alexander the Great, um, he had great dominion. He completed his conquest, his kind of worldly conquest with great speed. Um, so this kind of this four-headed, four-winged. So you have this fast beast as a leopard made to move even quicker um, with wings. And he had great dominion. There's a quote from Alexander that says this, or is attributed to him, a saying about him. It said this, he wept for there were no more worlds to conquer. So the Greeks had great dominion. And possibly, again, possibly the four heads represent the four generals who upon Alexander's death, they divided his kingdom up among his four generals. Um, And again, this is easier sometimes for us to look back on historically and see what happened and say like, it seems like this is talking about this. When Daniel's writing this, this stuff hadn't happened. And so you can imagine, he's seeing four-headed leopards with four wings. I mean, he's just like, I don't know what I'm seeing. But we can kind of look back and see some of this stuff and say, like, it seems that it was talking about this. And now this is where we get to the fourth beast. And I think this is the, the most important one. We'll spend a little more time talking about the fourth beast and the little horn that comes out. But the final beast we see is this dreadful and terrifying beast. Um, and maybe that's the beast some of you guys are in the morning if you haven't had coffee. You're dreadful and terrifying. I, I don't know. But earlier this week... Annabelle crawls into bed with me, and um, Allison, oh no, not Allison, Shelly told me Cheyenne has this problem too, a little, little too direct. That's our Annabelle, just too direct. She'll say what she's thinking. So she crawls into bed with me, and she snuggles up next to me, which is sweet, and you like that, right, when you have a kid, and she's a you know, knock on wood, God willing, our last kid. Um, so she, she, she's, so you're enjoying those moments a little more because you think this is probably your last one. She, she crawls up next to me and goes, Dad, your breath smells like poop. In the morning. And then she says, Could you just breathe out your nose? <laughs> and it's like, Oh my goodness, that child. Um, so apparently, my breath was kind of the dreadful and terrifying thing for her uh, that morning. But that girl just says what she thinks. Um, so Daniel sees this dreadful and terrifying beast. Um, and we kind of read about it uh, when I first read in Daniel 7. But we'll look a little more about Daniel's vision of that in Daniel 7 19. He says this, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before them, which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes of a mouth, eyes and a mouth, and spoke great boast, and seems, uh, seems greater than its companions. So he just kind of gives us a little greater description of this fourth beast that he sees. The beast is described as different from all the other beasts. It's exceedingly strong. It's exceedingly terrifying now. It has 10 horns, iron claws, or iron teeth and claws of bronze. Then it's going to have a little horn. Again, we don't understand exactly the look of all this, but somehow among the 10 horns, a little horn is going to rise out, uproot three of the 10 horns that are there, and this little horn is going to have mouths of an eyes and make great boast. Again, this could be just symbolism. You see a lot of symbolism throughout this don't know that this is specifically referring to an actual beast or a a symbolic beast. Um, But the beast is less earthly than the other creatures Daniel describes, so much so that he could not even compare it to an animal he knew. 
So like we're familiar with different animals. You know, we, can, we know what a leopard looks like. We know what a lion looks like. So we can kind of picture a lion that has wings on it. We can picture some of the, but right now we got no idea. We know it was dreadful and terrifying. And this wasn't like a kid, like a monster in the kid's book. There are monsters everywhere, right? When we read that to our kids and he goes to karate class and now he can beat up these monsters. It's not that kind of monster. This thing's like something that is scary. Daniel's not, not a sissy boy. This isn't like some weak guy that's scared of his own shadow. This was the guy that's willing to go and be thrown into a den of lions for his faith. And what he sees scares him greatly. So while we may not be able to envision exactly what it was, we can know that this was something that was very, very scary to see and made him greatly afraid. So let's look at part of the angel's interpretation about what this was in Daniel 7.23. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. So let's look kind of at some of the viewpoints of this fourth beast. Um, Some view it as the ancient Roman Empire, and this would kind of fall in line with the history of the other kings and what you find there is the next great empire or great kingdom uh, that came after the Greeks would have been the Romans. Um, and so Rome was known for being brutal and terrifying. So they could be that fourth beast, brutal, terrifying, tormenting. Um, in the statue in Daniel 2, uh, there's an important event referenced in Daniel 2 that says this, the fourth, uh, that, that would kind of support this claim that the fourth beast is the Roman Empire. Daniel 2.34, as you looked, a stone cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. So this stone that's cut from no human hand crushes the statue from Daniel 2, and it shatters it to smithereens. And this verse is kind of widely accepted as a prophecy of the coming Messiah, that he's going to crush all other kingdoms. And this would fit into the viewpoint that that fourth beast was the Roman Empire, um, because Jesus entered into existence on earth when Rome was ruling the world. In a sense, the stone cut from no human hands makes its first earthly arrival while Rome is ruling. And he crushes the statue. And since the new king has come, Jesus being the new king, um, establishing a new kingdom. Another point of view is this, is that the fourth beast is kind of this symbolic or future Roman empire. It may not even be specifically Rome, but a symbolic Roman empire. This view kind of looks ahead and it relies heavily on the combination of stuff that's found in Daniel and Revelation. And it would hold to that little horn as being referenced to the Antichrist. Um, the, uh, other views kind of hold to that little horn as being a different ruler from that time period. Um, so we do notice a correlation, though. There are the ten horns in Daniel 7. There's the ten toes of the statue in Daniel 2. There's reference to these things in Revelation 13 and 17 as well. Um, so the kind of the future point of view, the futurists take this and says, there's some sort of ten-nation federation, and what we'll call it the modern Roman Empire that's going to form And ultimately, at some point, the Antichrist is going to rise out of that 10-nation or 10-kingdom federation, and the Antichrist is going to rise out from within that. And so those are kind of the two of the main points of view. This view would also kind of fit with the, the stone that's cut by no human hands. If that's a prophecy about Christ, it could be a prophecy about his second coming and his return, where he will come and ultimately crush all kingdoms of the world and establish his new heaven and new earth. 
So that could fit that as well. There's also those that think maybe this is talking about both of those things. That it was talking about the old historic Roman Empire. And Jesus is kind of groundbreaking into human history. And it's talking about also kind of pointing to the future. And that, again, there's just so much of this that that we don't know. And there's good Christians um, and smart people that disagree on a lot of it. So there is this one feature, though, that does come up out of, the, out of the beast, that dreadful and terrifying beast, and that's the little horn. And so we read that that little horn was given human char- characteristics. It had eyes and a mouth. It was making great boast. Daniel 7.21, it says, uh, As Daniel looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. And so kind of moving forward, I'm going to present the viewpoint that, it, in, in my opinion, and I'm going to say that uh, in my opinion, that this little horn is representing the Antichrist. And so he comes to power, and we don't know how. Again, people have been made to look foolish by saying they know who the Antichrist is, and they know how he's going to come to power. Um, man, I had someone at a church I was at say, this person's the Antichrist, I know it, and before he's done, he's going it, to, and then a few years go by, and that person's on the ash heap of history, and they weren't the Antichrist, and you're like, now you just look foolish, and no one takes you seriously anymore, okay? We don't know. If that's really what it's referring to and, and, and that's happening, we don't know. And so be cautious of someone who boldly proclaims they know. The Bible doesn't tell us who, who specifically, like it's this person. Because their name had six letters and their middle name had six letters and their last name had six letters. It's like, okay, I mean, just be cautious of that stuff, guys. Because people will proclaim it like they know it all. Um, so we, we're going to look though. If this little horn was the Antichrist, it appears there's a season and time where he's giving victory over the saints, and he's going to prevail against the saints. And Daniel sees this little horn prevailing over them in his vision, and then the angel in its interpretation of Daniel's vision confirms that in Daniel 7.24. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. Again, if, if you're kind of viewing this as futuristic talking, ten, ten horns, ten, the, the modern Roman Empire or, you know, a ten-nation federation that is kind of ruling out of this, so out of this kind of ten-nation federation, if that's your viewpoint, another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three of the kings and he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and law and, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. So it appears there's this season where this little horn is given victory against the saints or this Antichrist is winning. He will be speaking against God, making proclamations against him. He'll be arrogant and boastful. Um, but there will be a day coming when his power is stripped away and he's victorious no more. In Daniel 7.22, it says, Until the ancient days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So judgment was given, in a sense, and this little horn is no longer ruling. Daniel 7.26, But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed. So his reign is going to be short-lived. This king is not going to rule forever. And what we come back to when we look in Daniel 7 here in verse, we're going to go back to verse 9. I went a little out of order. There is a king coming that will be the ultimate and eternal king though. Combined, kind of we look at Daniel's vision of the four beasts and what's happening in his interpretation by the angel. He then sees before his interpretation, the angel's interpretation, he sees this other vision and he sees this in Daniel 7 verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. 
His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So this is talking ancient of days in reference to God, possibly talking about as books were opened, the book of life. Again, we find that reference later in the Bible in the great white throne judgment. But I want you to catch this closely in verse 11. I want you to see what happens to the little horn, as Daniel says. I look then because of the sound of great words or the great boast that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. So ultimately, no matter what kind of we see as our viewpoint of how we get there or the end times, what we see is that we come back together with this truth is that God's kingdom will be established and not destroyed. So all fake rulers, all people who claim to rule the world, we look at Babylon, Medo-Persia, Alexander the Great, the Romans, any great, any, whatever you want to say, any great empire is going to be brought to its knees under the ultimate reign of God and his king Jesus that's established. So we may have different views on how we get there and what transpires to get us to that point. But ultimately, we know at the end of it all, God still reigns. And that's where I want us to go is kind of what can we learn from all of this? And the first thing is this, is God is still in control. See, in the first six chapters, we kind of looked historically at the kings who were ruling And we looked at God using his person, Daniel, and we looked at some other people he used at that time. But we saw that God was still in control then, even when evil forces thought they were ruling. Babylonians were not known as Christians or God followers, but we saw that God can still protect his people regardless who the earthly king is. He protected Daniel. He protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We saw that God has control over kings and times and kingdoms, But now we look and we see God is in control over spiritual forces as well. You know, there may be times we look and we think evil's winning. But we have to keep in mind God is ultimately still in control. Even if we look around us in culture and society and things we see happening, it grieves our heart and hurts us. We could come back to scripture and say like, I don't know how this is all working out and I don't understand it all. But what I do know is this, is that God is ultimately in control. And I'm grounded and rooted in that truth. A few weeks ago, I went to this like physical therapy class. Um, it, it was like, it, they, they offered it for free. And I was like, okay, I'll go try it out at Kaiser. And it was for neck pain and like stretches and stuff you can do. And I've just had just general neck stiffness over time. Um, and so I thought, well, for free, I'll go try it out. And, and as I was there, they said, one of the things people have to work on is relieving stress. And they were like, but in fact, we have a whole nother class for that. And I was like, good, because I didn't want to just come to a stress relief class. I wanted to like learn like stretches and things to do to help. But I just thought to myself, like, we have entire, like, uh, classes and books and blogs and video series and all these things about how do we deal with stress? Like, how do you get stress out of your life? And as Christians, I, I just, I think we so often forget this truth so easily is that we shouldn't be bogged down so heavily with stress, right? If we truly believe God's in control, why, why am I so weighted down and worried If I truly believe that at the core of who I am, that God's in control of everything, why do I got to worry all the time? Why am I stressed out? At the end of it all, regardless of how we get there, if God's going to be victorious, I don't need to sweat about it so much. I don't need a whole class on stress relief 
She need to trust God with those things. Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds with Christ Jesus. So we're not anxious because we've given it all to God, and we trust him with it, and we let that go. And we trust that God is in control. See, if we're in a relationship with Christ, we call that salvation. The end shouldn't leave us with fear and dread and, and like confusion and think like, oh, how's this all going to happen? And wringing our hands and so many people, they, they want to study end times and then all they do is end up frustrated and exasperated because it's so confusing and we don't understand it. What it should ultimately do is bring us to this point where we understand the end times is going to bring about an end of human corruption and man's sinfulness. All these things that we think are wrong with the world, all the injustices we see around us, they ultimately come to an end with God's ultimate victory over sin. And so ultimately what the end should do is in a sense instill with us this sense of peace and calming that knowing someday whether I'm alive for it or not, God's going to make all these things right. And all injustice ceases. And human and mankind's sinfulness comes to an end. And we understand God's in control, so why fret? The next thing we see is that Jesus will reign forevermore. The unending kingdom with God Will, and King Jesus will be established. There is a new kingdom that will be established for eternity. So we'll see Jesus, the, the reference as the son of man or the stone cut from no human hand. As he came to earth as a baby, he would grow into a man who would be crucified for our sins. But he's returning as a king to rule forever. He didn't just get born into this baby, into a manger to celebrate his life as a baby because we all love babies and they're cute. He grew into a full-grown man to be a sacrifice for our sins. That could open the door of salvation. He'll reign forevermore. Daniel says it this way in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. All these other kingdoms, all the other rulers, all the other nations that have risen up and think they're the greatest and they'll never pass away that are now on the ash heap of history pale in comparison to the kingdom that will be established with Jesus as king. Daniel 2, 44 and 45a says this, and in those days the kings of God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. All these things that were hold so valuable, the nations that thought they were so valuable and so strong are crushed by the stone cut from no human hand. They're crushed ultimately by Jesus' reign. And I love Paul's description of Jesus in Colossians 1, 15 and 17. He says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him holds all things together. Kingdoms don't exist apart from God. There's not kingdoms that exist that he is not aware of. He has created all of this. He is the head of all of these things. He is the supreme king. 
They all pale in comparison. There's not much left to say. The Bible speaks for itself. God is going to establish a new kingdom with Jesus as king, and he will reign forevermore. All the things that we think we trust in will last forever. I, I, I love our country. This is I really not meant to be a slight. America's not going to last forever. And whether that happens through our own devices and own doing, or ultimately Jesus is coming and establishing a new kingdom, at some point our country fades away. And we all serve the one true king. And we serve that king that reigns forevermore with our brothers and sisters from Sierra Leone and China and all nations of the earth gather and worship and serve Jesus that have come into a relationship with Christ through salvation. And so this kind of leads me to my last thought and question is this, is will we join him? Is our allegiance to him? Daniel 7:18 says this, but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So if God establishes an eternal kingdom, who joins him? And it says the saints, the saints of the most high. Well, who are the saints? Because on my best day, I'm not saintly. On my best day, I more equate to a filthy rag than to a saint. So who are saints? The saints of the most high are those who believed in Jesus as Savior. I'm not a saint because I do saintly things. None of us are saints because of we can do anything or earn that. We're saints because we've been made new in our relationship with Christ. We've been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we join this eternal kingdom by faith in Christ. And we call that salvation. So how do we do that? We admit we're a sinner in need of a savior. We believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave and we choose to place our faith in him alone. You see, ultimately... All of this at some point, and I'm not trying to be doom and gloom or, or like have mass hysteria fear. That, that's never my point in teaching, but it's just this understanding that ultimately all of this around us is coming to an end. Where are we going to stand when it all comes to an end? Are we going to stand before God and be found in the book of life as a saint, as one who's received Christ and believed in him as Savior? Or are we going to stand before him and hold up our works and say, I did this, I did this, I did this? We even see in the New Testament that what does Jesus say? All these people did things in my name or said they did these good things in my name and they're basically cast out and depart from me. I never knew you. See, it's not about what we can do and how we can earn it and how we can strive to get there. It's about what Jesus did. He did it and completed on the cross. He will reign as king forevermore. Are we going to worship him forevermore? Because we are a saint through faith in Christ. You know, we can argue and debate, and people have done that, and theologians have done that, and sometimes I think it's really irrelevant. The bottom line is we know there'll be an end. Where will we stand at the end? Will we bow before Jesus on earth and call him Lord and Savior? Or will we be forced to bow before him when it's too late and we're cast out at the end? I want to encourage you, Turn to Christ now. Put your faith in him now as Savior. Worship him forevermore as he will reign forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that ultimately you've set all of this up and and you know how the end's going to occur. I don't have to fret about it. I don't even have to have the answers to how it's going to happen. That I can say, I'm... I've read about this and studied it and watched videos on it, and I feel as confused now as I've ever felt in my whole life, and I don't have any clear-cut answers. 
but I'm grateful the one thing we can be clear about and we can be sure on is our standing before you. That if we've come to faith in Christ, we don't have to worry about it. That we trust our eternity with you. We trust our hope, our salvation with you. That we rest in who you are and what you did for us. And so while some of this can be fun to look at and learn from and maybe be challenged by, we can be secure knowing my eternity's secure. However the end gets here, I can trust that I'm going to worship you, that I'm going to live in the new kingdom for eternity. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.